those of you who were present last night will recall, I hope, that uh, in the message I mentioned a, a portion of the scripture that was read this evening. And uh, that wasn't, uh, that was kind of deliberate as a sort of preparation for this evening. John 14, 15, and 16 contain what is called our Lord's Last Discourse. In the 12th chapter of John, uh, we have the record of his own awareness that these were his last hours. For example, I read from the 12th chapter, beginning at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He was conscious that these were his last hours. Chapter 13 is the record of what I call the first Last Supper. That confounded a woman not too long ago when I said that. What do you mean, the first Last Supper? Well, it was the first time the Last Supper was observed, what we call the Last Supper. The first time our Lord celebrated, in other words, the communion service. And you'll recall, as it is recorded in John 13, that after he had uh, celebrated the Passover, really, and then initiated the Lord's Supper, that he girded himself with a towel and took a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet. I don't know whether any of you have ever been participated in a foot-washing service. Presbyterians don't get into that a great deal. I do remember that our celebration of evangelism in Cincinnati, however long ago that was, and it seems forever now, but one of the things that was done, we feel, felt God leading us to do this, the moderators of the Northern Church and the Southern Church uh, agreed to allow their feet to be washed, and then they washed each other's feet. And for those of you who were present at that service, it was really a very significant moment in the lives of all of us, an unforgettable moment. My experience has been whenever we've had uh, foot-washing services is that the problem is not with the washer, but with those whose feet are being washed. It's very, very difficult to submit to that. Try to imagine, then, this occasion when our Lord, having told him, told his disciples what was going to happen, knowing that he came from God and was going to return to God, washed their feet. And of course, Peter typically expressed what was in every heart. He said, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, it's difficult sometimes to take that kind of a position to let the Lord wash our feet. But he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not clean at all. Then Peter said, well, wash all of me. <laughs> Jesus said, no, if I wash your feet, it's enough. Then comes the final instructions 
in chapters 14, 15, and 16, as recorded in John's Gospel. And following, in the 17th chapter, his high priestly prayer. And in his high priestly prayer, having prayed for his disciples, then he prayed for us. Listen to these words, verse 20. I do not pray for these only, that is, the twelve, but, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, there's not one of us here who has not believed in Jesus Christ through the words of the apostles. That's the only record we have of his life and death and resurrection. The only record we have of his word and his works, the apostles' words. And so every one of us have believed in Christ through the words of the apostles, which means that on that night, before he was arrested, tried, crucified, he prayed for you and me. I'm not going to take the time to examine that prayer, but sometimes read that prayer, especially the last verses of John 17, remembering that Jesus had you in his mind when he was praying. Then on chapter 18, he crossed the Kidron Valley and went into the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested and taken to trial and finally crucified. Now, the theme of the last discourse is life in the Spirit, or more precisely, life infilled by the Spirit. In chapter 14, he gives us the promise of the Comforter or the Counselor. In chapter 15, he talks about the abiding life. In chapter 16, he talks about the ministry of the Spirit but the Spirit does not work in a vacuum. He works in you and me. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. The work He does, He does through your body and mine. This is His ministry as Jesus described it, John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Counselor or the Comforter will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he describes the ministry of the Spirit 
in uh, chapter 16. Now let's look at the passage that was read tonight. This is the part we referred to last night. The passage begins with a question. But the question was suggested by something Jesus said just before that when he was answering Thomas's doubt. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Giving Jesus an opportunity to give us that marvelous statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then Jesus adds, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth you know him and have seen him. Now put yourself in the place of those disciples. Can't you just imagine them saying, when have we known the Father? And when have we seen him? And they wondered. But Philip put the question that was on every heart. He said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Now comes the unequivocal and clear answer. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How long do you have to know Jesus before you know you're seeing God? How much time do you have to spend with Jesus before you realize who you're spending time with? How many of us profess to believe in Jesus but are still unaware of the fact that in him is the Father? He continues with an explanation about this statement. I could imagine him understanding another question in Philip's mind, though it isn't recorded here. Well, how do we see the Father when we see him? And he says, Do you not believe... Now, the language is very important here. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority or of myself. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now listen. Everything that Jesus did was the Father doing it in him and through him. Jesus not only entered history to show us what God is like, but Jesus entered history to show what man is like as God intended in creation. And the perfect man or woman is one in whom the Father dwells and through whom the Father works. Now notice, it's not just a matter of my doing something with the Father's help. 
as though I couldn't do it if I were unaided by the Father. No, you can't get that out of this language. Jesus said, the Father who dwells in me, he is the one who did the work. I didn't do it. It was his word, it was his work, it was not mine. I was simply the physical instrument. I was simply the fleshy instrument that he used to do his work. Then he adds, verse 11, Believe me. Believe me. I can just hear Jesus saying that to me again and again and again. Look, Dick, just believe me. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves because they were the Father's works. Now comes the incredible statement. This fascinating plan which Jesus has for his body, the church, following his ascension and Pentecost. He says, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, He who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now remember what he's just been arguing to, to say to Philip, when you see me, you see the Father, because the works that I do are not my works, but the Father's, and the words that I speak are not my words, but the Father's. Believe me, because they are the Father's works. Now he says, if you believe me, just as the Father worked in me, I will work in you. The work I do shall you do also. Let me suggest that we do not make a kind of automatic uh, identity here, thinking of works as the miracles. As a matter of fact, the miracles which Jesus did had a very specific purpose. He never worked a superfluous miracle. He never worked miracles to entertain. He was not a magician. Every miracle he performed was in the context of the encounter or the incident in which he was involved, and it was to be a sign, which is what the word in the Greek really means, a sign that he was who he claimed to be. If you want to hear about the works of Christ, the miracles would be included, of course, he still is a miracle-working God. 
But listen to him, listen to him speak as he establishes his credentials for ministry at the outset. This is from Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has what? Anointed me to do what? To preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now identify his credentials in Luke 4 with the word works in John 12. Then it, the record says he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These are the works, not all of them exhaustively, of course, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Secondly, will you please notice that Jesus did not say, you will do the works that I did. He said, you will do the works that I do. This was not something that we were going to repeat already happening, but this was something that was going to be done by Christ in the future. Here's the way the Acts of the Apostle opens. In the first book, referring to his gospel, Old Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now Luke used the Greek language more precisely than any other writer in the New Testament. He was a master at the Greek language. He was a scientist, a medical scientist. And Luke was very careful with words as the Spirit of God guided him. So the words are precise as he opens the Acts. In the first book, that is in my Gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus began something in his pilgrimage on earth which was going to continue. And the book of Acts is the sacred record of the beginning of the continuation of the works that Jesus had begun in his body during his ministry. And uh, as I pointed out before, the book of Acts does not end. It simply closes with Paul teaching about the things of the kingdom in prison. The book of Acts did not come to an end in the New Testament because the book of Acts was open-ended. It was going to continue being uh, lived out 
being recorded and the book of Acts is being written today. It's being written by members of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church. And it will continue being written until Jesus comes again. Now who will do these works that Jesus does? Who are those that will continue the work that he began? Well, he said, he that believes in me. Some months after I'd uh, moved to Washington, D.C. from Hollywood, I returned for whatever reason I don't remember now. But I spent an evening with Dr. Mears, Henrietta Mears, in her home in uh, West Los Angeles. And we had a wonderful visit together. It wasn't long after this that she went to heaven. We had a marvelous evening together. One thing she said I can never forget. She said, Dick, if I had my life to live over again, I'd believe Jesus more. Now, Henrietta Mears, by reputation, was a woman of faith. The stories of her faith are just tremendous. I'll not take time to tell you about them tonight. But everyone that knew her thought of her as a woman of faith. That was her reputation. Now here at the end of her life, she says to me, Dick, if I had my life to live over, I'd believe Jesus more. Believe Jesus. Notice what he says, he who believes on me. And we talked this morning about the sixth chapter of John when they asked Jesus the question, what are the works of God that we may do them? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, He's working through you. Whatever work Jesus has to do in the world today, whatever work he's been doing in the world since his ascension, he's been doing through his people, through their bodies, through their minds, through their lips. This is the way Jesus works in the world today, through his people through you and me. I couldn't help but uh, think about this as I was watching the uh, slides this evening and uh, somewhere along the, the line it was stated that the, member, the membership of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church is nearly 8,000 people. And I thought to myself, Tomorrow morning, Jesus Christ is going to be in 8,000 places in Dallas. Wherever you are, Jesus is. And of course, he'll be in a lot more places in Dallas. Wherever there is one who believes in him, he is present 
and he is doing his work. One of the problems with this is that we have made a false distinction, a non-biblical distinction, between the sacred and the secular. It's uh, secular to uh, work in a corporation in the city. It's sacred to run the business of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church. It's secular to teach public school. It's sacred to teach Sunday school in the Highland Park Presbyterian Church. It's secular to be on the board of directors of a corporation. It's sacred to be on the session of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church. It's secular to manage a business downtown. It's sacred to manage the affairs of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church. Now that idea, that false dichotomy, has so infected us that we really think we're doing the work of Christ only when we're doing something, quote, religious or, quote, spiritual. But Paul said, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Some time ago I was speaking about this matter in a conference in Washington. And when I finished, a man stood up and uh, he said, I'm a Buick dealer and I run my Buick dealership for the glory of God. Well, I was interested in this. I said, tell us about it. He said, I give Bibles away. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving Bibles away. But do you see what was going on in his head? He was running his dealership to the glory of God because he gave Bibles away. I said, sir, I do not know you and I wouldn't offend you for the world. But may I suggest that when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the flesh, he's not going to ask you how many Bibles you gave away. He's going to ask you how you managed your Buick dealership. He's going to ask you how honest you were with your customers. He's going to ask you how you ran your service department. He's going to ask you how you treated your employees. He's going to ask you what you did with your profits. Those will be the relevant questions. When my brother Bruce stands before the Lord to give an account of the deeds done in the flesh, he's going to ask Bruce how he ran his law practice. Jesus Christ is not going to question us about how busy we were in church activities or whether or not we sang in the choir, or served on an official board, or taught Sunday school, or how many verses of Scripture we've memorized, or how many times we read through the Bible, or how many people we, quote, led to Christ. He's going to ask us about how we conducted our daily lives so that men and women saw the Father through us.
That's the acid test. Now the question is, well, how in the world can I manifest the Father? How can I manifest Jesus Christ in my business, on my job? The answer is you can't. But he can in you and through you. Believe it. Believe it because he said it. Here's another way we are infected in the church. I discovered somewhere along the line as a pastor that every criteria for a successful pastor was a materialistic criteria. How big is the church building? How big is the congregation? How big is the budget? Big building, big congregation, big budget, a successful pastor. Well, thank God for big buildings and big budgets and big congregations. But those are materialistic criteria. And they are not the measure of the effectiveness of a pastor or the people. The measure of the effectiveness that everything you do in this building, everything your staff does, everything all of the organizations of the church do, the measure of the effectiveness of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church is what's happening when the people from the Highland Park Presbyterian Church are scattered all over, all over metropolitan Dallas or wherever Christ sends you. Do, does the world see the Father then? Does the world see Jesus Christ then? And you can, of course you can't measure that. You can't evaluate that. Only God knows that. I don't know how many times in the few days I've been here that I've met people who in one way or another told me that they were influenced. I don't know how many times in the few days I've been here that I've met people who in one way or another told me that they were influenced by Christ through me. I didn't know it till they told me. In most of the cases, it happened years ago. I didn't know that. Of course, it was thrilling to hear it and to know that God had used me. But I didn't have to know it to be used. I have one friend who is the head of an organization that you would recognize if I mentioned it, which I won't. And he said to me one day some time ago, he said, uh, one of our most generous contributors came to me recently and he said, calling me by name, I've been supporting your organization for a good long time. But he said, I've decided I have to switch my support. Because he said, I've discovered that it costs you a dollar and 28 cents to win one person to Christ, and I'm going to support this, this other organization that's doing it for 87 cents. Well, it is very humorous, but it is very tragic. 
because you think, you see, we tend to equate the work of Christ in the world, confine it, limit it to religious things, spiritual things. No, this is what the Highland Park Presbyterian Church does in Big D. It runs many corporations. It practices law and medicine and dentistry. It runs oil companies and is in construction business. It maintains thousands and thousands of homes. It teaches school. It does office work, secretarial work, clerical work. Why, the Highland Park Presbyterian Church is doing all kinds of things in Dallas. Those things are the work of Christ. Do people see Christ in you? Is there the touch of Christ on everything you touch? There will be if you believe what he said, whether you can see it or not. Because if you, if you wait to see the works, then you're not believing Christ, you're believing the works. And that's not believing Christ. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus, whom he sent. So you don't constantly check up on yourself to find out how much you're doing the work of Christ. You just believe him. And if you believe him, then he's doing his work through you all the time. How do you know? Because he said so. There's a wonderful example of that in the 15th chapter. In the first 11 verses, Jesus uses the word abide. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten times. Ten times in 11 verses. He speaks of abiding. A couple of times he mentions fruit. I can't tell you how many times I've heard John 15 taught and the emphasis is on fruit, not abiding. And here's the way it comes out. You'll know you're abiding in Christ if you're bearing fruit. That is not what Jesus Christ said. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bring forth much fruit. Jesus said, you will know you're bearing fruit because you're abiding. It constantly gets turned around. You'll know you're abiding if you're bearing fruit. So we're constantly looking for the fruit we're bearing in order to find out whether or not we're abiding. And that sends most of us on a guilt trip most of the time. Now I have the word of Jesus here. And he said... If I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then lest there be any misunderstanding, he adds, for without me, you can do very little.
You're shaking your head. Isn't that what he said? Without me, you can do very little? What did he say? How much can you do without Christ? How much can you do without Christ? Of course not, because it is Christ doing the works through you when you abide. Now let me repeat the text. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now let me just read you a couple little passages here later on in this, in this text. He says in verse 19, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Remember the text we talked about last night? Paul's statement, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Well, that's a contradiction. If you're crucified, you're dead. How can you be dead and alive at the same time? Well, the answer comes in the next statement. Yet it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. Notice what he says here. Because I live, you also will live. Now Jesus said to his disciples, the reason that when I go away, if you believe in me, you'll do the works that I do in greater works, is because, he said, I'm going to pray the Father who will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And then he adds, he has been with you. Prepositions are important here. He shall be in you. That happened at Pentecost. But that isn't the end of the matter. He goes on to say, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. And a little later on, and my father will love him. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Dear friends, on the word of Jesus Christ, I say to you that the same God who spoke the universe into existence as recorded in Genesis 1 dwells in your body if you believe in Jesus. Believe me. And every time you wake up in the morning, remind yourself that you are a body filled with God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then yield to the control of the Spirit of God. Believe Jesus. 
And whatever you do that day and wherever you go that day and with whomever you are that day, Christ will be doing his work. Let us pray. Father in heaven, so many of us would argue at the drop of a hat about the inerrancy of Scripture, and yet somehow when we hear it, it's so hard to believe. We look everywhere else in order to find support for our belief instead of just taking Jesus Christ and his word. We even believe the word of each other more easily than we believe the word of Christ. Help this congregation, help these beloved sisters and brothers in Christ to realize the incredible, the incredible power, potential of this congregation in this city and state and nation and the world if they just decide to take Christ seriously in what he said and believe him. Amen.